This is the On The Banks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation. Now, here's your host, Lance Glenn. Hello, everyone. I am, of course, your host, Lance Glenn, and this is episode 66 of the On The Banks Podcast. If you don't already, you can follow me on Twitter at Lance underscore G11. And of course, you can follow On The Banks on Twitter as well at OTB underscore SB Nation. There are many ways to listen to all 66 episodes of the On The Banks podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Just search On The Banks podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, you can find all of our episodes and so much more great content by going to onthebanks.com. First off, I hope everyone listening is safe, healthy, staying home, and being smart. You know, we all want Rutgers sports back, and the only way that happens is if we all do our part. I decided for episode 66 to go back to men's basketball, but look at Rutgers in a more analytical kind of way. For this episode, I am really excited to be joined by the creator of the Ken Palm ranking and the founder of KenPalm.com, Ken Pomeroy. Ken really brought advanced analytics to college basketball and has created a ranking system that every college basketball fan really lives by. I know me personally, I check Ken Palm every day during the season, and for the last four years, every time I check, it seems like Rutgers just continues to rise. I used to check Ken Palm years ago and, and had to scroll down to find the Scarlet Knights because they'd be either in the low 100s or in the 200s. Now I go onto the website and boom! There is RU, don't have to scroll or really do anything. It was an exciting season, it's been an exciting Pykele era so far, and the Ken Palm rankings show just how far this program has come. With so much talent coming back and big time pieces being added to this program, I'm confident in saying that the Rutgers Ken Palm rise and the Rutgers Ken Palm resurgence is definitely not even close to being done. Time to talk to the reporters. Here's your host, Lance Glenn. He is the go-to for not only Rutgers fans, but college basketball fans around the country when it comes to team performance and analytics, and his site is really an encyclopedia of advanced stats and metrics. I am very excited to be joined by the founder of KenPom.com, Ken Pomeroy. Ken, a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Lance. Thanks for having me on the pod. Appreciate it. So, Ken, since this quarantine has started, I've started off all of my interviews the same way. You know, no NCAA tournament in March and April, for that matter, as well. No sports in general for really now almost a month and a half. How have you been keeping busy? What's the quarantine routine like in the Pomeroy household? Well, it's, it's difficult. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in some respects, it's, you know, similar to uh, how it would be at the end of a college basketball season where there's a little bit of kind of decompressing and um, there's not necessarily an urgency to get things ramped up for the, for the following season. I'm definitely a guy who likes to uh, appreciate the off season, I guess, you know, I don't need college basketball 365 days a year, but, um, but, uh, you know, outside of that, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's difficult. <laughs> I mean, there's just little, you know, odd things I do and um, it's, but it is difficult to kind of get, uh, excited <laughs> for, the upcoming season with so much uncertainty. I am maintaining like preseason ratings and following uh, player movement and things like that. But uh, great when when this is all behind us. And it must be hard for you. You know, your site is all about college basketball. 
What all college basketball fans and experts really live for is the NCAA tournament, and that just didn't happen. So while it's hard for the fans of schools who thought they were in, and trust me, as a Rutgers fan, it was obviously extremely hard for all of us waiting almost 30 years to go dancing, it must have been even more difficult to you as someone whose career really revolves around the sport. Right. Yeah, I've been trying to think about you know what the worst possible timing would be because I feel like... Uh, Maybe, you know, it wasn't great, obviously, to get it canceled right before the NCAA tournament, but we did get some conference tournaments in. We did get all of the regular season in. You know, it would have been worse if this probably had canceled, this, you know, canceled the season early on. Like, we didn't have a season at all or only played a few games. Uh, so, as far as timing goes, trying to look on the bright side of that, <laughs> I assume that uh, maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, the timing, it, you know, stinks that the tournament didn't happen. And obviously, really tough for, yeah, fans of teams like Rutgers who, uh, obviously, we're headed there after a long drought, but um, but as far as trying to maintain uh, some sort of normalcy in the college basketball schedule between last season and, and the upcoming season, the timing is, you know, it definitely could have been worse, I guess I'd say. Yeah, most definitely. So, Ken, before we dive into Rutgers, I want to first ask about you and Ken Palm overall, right? So explain to me how a meteorologist working with the National Weather Service in Montana transformed his career to become really the premier advanced analytics guru now in college basketball. I mean, talk about changing fields. How did you start Ken Palm and now ultimately grow it to what it has become today? Well, uh, it, it really was born out of the kind of analytics movement in baseball in the early 2000s. And as that started to explode, uh, I was really kind of drawn to people who were uh, writing about baseball in uh, kind of an analytic-focused way. Um, and so, you know, I was uh, looking for the people who were writing about college basketball like that. And at the time, uh, after a pretty extensive search, I didn't find anybody. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start doing this. And just for fun, if nothing else, like I had no no real expectation of what kind of audience it would bring in, but um, that's how it all got started. It really wasn't in a, you know, there wasn't a thought in my mind or a long term plan to do this full time or for it to get to where it has gotten to at this point. Uh, that was sort of just a byproduct of uh, the times and the the lack of uh, you know anybody else doing this. But uh, obviously, it's, it's worked out pretty well. What you do with Ken Palm, I find to be just so fascinating. I follow the stats. I follow your rankings. I'm a subscriber. And some of the algorithms you use to determine these rankings are really just so interesting. I try my best to kind of keep up with all that I can, but some math is just, look, too advanced for me. For the fans like me who swear by Ken Palm, but aren't those stats junkies, can you give a brief rundown or, or description of really how you form your rankings from number one all the way down to number 353? The uh, the rankings are based on uh, an offensive rating and a defensive rating for each team. Uh, the, those ratings are based on, you know, for the offense, they're based on the points that a team scores per 100 possessions. For the defense, the points team allows for 100 possessions over the course of the season. And uh, and then those two things are adjusted for the quality of the uh, opponent that a team is playing, uh, where games are played, how recently they're played. Uh, a few other factors go into it. But that's uh, the basic idea. And a team's rating is just the difference between their offense and, and defensive rating. So you want your offensive rating to be high. You want your defensive rating to be low. You want to allow, allow a few points. And uh the bigger that difference is between those two ratings, the better your rating is. So, uh, so the, the math is, uh, it's not even so much math as it is an algorithm, but, uh, but I think the general concept is, is pretty easy for people to understand. 
You mentioned the change in baseball going from, you know, old school stats to analytics. And I think you really pioneered that movement in college basketball. As as time progresses, the game changes and new stats come into focus, pushing out older, more antiquated ones. Do you kind of see that happening in basketball now where advanced analytics are taking over? And are there certain stats you find to be old fashioned and being phased out really in favor of newer ones? So it seems like there has been progress in that regard. I think when I first started out, I was really impressed with how many people uh, started using my work and you know others' work that is similar to mine, um, just in terms of uh, you know looking at uh, offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency and getting away from judging a team's offense by the bulk points they score per game, which can be influenced by the pace that they play at. So when it comes to offense and defense, it does seem pretty ubiquitous now that teams or uh, that uh, like the media will generally refer to to my rankings in terms of at least a starting point for evaluating how good a team is offensively and defensively. After that, I think it's been a little slow going uh, in terms of pushing out some older stats that aren't quite as useful. I mean, you know, you mentioned that some some stats are really hard to, to calculate and figure out, but most of the other stats on my site are, are just simple, you know, division or, or addition or something. Um, I, I guess the one that, you know, will bug me forever, I guess, is, is field goal percentage, you know, why people still use field goal percentage. And I get that it's been used for decades. So there's, it has a lot of momentum. But at this point with a three-point shot and how often it's taken, you know, it's just, it's so much more insightful to see a team's three-point percentage and two-point percentage, even on the player level, looking at it that way and uh, and looking at how many threes they take. So the percentage of, of shots that are threes, I mean, th- those stats are, are – are the stats that should be used uh, way more often than raw field goal percentage, which can can be heavily influenced by whether you're a, a guy that shoots a lot of threes or a guy that you know is just getting dunks at the rim. And, you know, I think we saw that with Rutgers this season. Their three-point percentage was not very high, 295th in the nation, according to Ken Palm, but their two-point percentage was a lot better at 143. They were a bigger team, obviously not a great shooting one, but had players like Geo Baker, Ron Harper Jr., for example, that could make big shots. But do you think that field goal percentage stat is kind of skewed? Because while they weren't a great shooting team, their three-point percentage was really what brought them down, while their two-point percentage was a lot higher. Right, I- Rutgers, you know, they obviously they're, they're a little challenged offensively. They, you know, were led by their defense. I mean, I think the, you know, when you look at the the breakdown defensively, even it's um, a little more telling. Where they were 13th in defensive two point percentage, and I mean, the difference between twos and threes is that you know threes you can you can get pretty lucky, you know, over a, a stretch, either good or bad luck. You know, guys are hitting threes for you, or they're or they're they're missing threes and they shouldn't make them. I mean, that can happen over certainly in a game, but over a, a longer period as well. But two point percentage is just you know, you, you can't fake that. Like, if you're a good two-point defensive team, like, that's that's who you are. That's in your DNA, and that actually is really important for defensive success most of the time. So, um, so those are, the, those are the things I look at. Obviously, the offensive side, you know, they weren't quite as good. That's been the story under Steve Peichel's that you really, you know, there's much more. He's kind of the anti-Fran McCaffrey. You know, he's a, a really good defensive coach, has a good defensive system, but the offense is kind of lagged behind. And, uh, and then, you know, that kind of comes out in the stats. As you mentioned, the three-point shooting, uh, they're just, they just, you know, really weren't a perimeter shooting team last year. The, the two-point shooting was passable, pretty much national average, um, which, you know, if you wanted to – you know, predict a team's offense or, or I guess assess a team's offense. If you're going to have a disparity between those two, you'd rather be better in two-point percentage, again, because it's it's more consistent than three-point percentage. So let's start really diving into Rutgers, right? Before we get into specifics, this team, when Steve Peichel took over, was 279th 
in Ken Palm. They finished this past season his fourth, now 28th. That's about, I did the did the math, a 63-spot jump per season under Steve Peichel. You know, turning really the worst high major program in the country to a team that would have went to the NCAA tournament this past year. Do you remember ever having a team make that big a leap and really change night and day as a program like we've seen Rutgers do these past four seasons? Uh, not off the top of my head. I, um, you know, certainly, yeah, it's impressive what he's done. Yeah, just, you know, the, the fact that it really wasn't. I mean, there's just a long string of, of losing seasons in conference play for Rutgers. That was, he didn't really have much in the way of tradition. And, uh, you know, I remember when, when they announced Steve uh, got the job. Like, I, you know, by default, even though uh, he seemed like he did a fine job at Stony Brook and, and seemed like he was a pretty sharp dude, uh, my default is always going to be – if you're going to a place that hasn't won in you know a couple decades, like you're probably gonna have trouble having some success. So um, it's really impressive, uh, you know, what he's done in such a short period of time. Joined alongside by the creator of Ken Palm, Ken Pomeroy. You know, one statistic I love to pick your brain on is three-point percentage defense. Rutgers this past year was a top 50 team, according to Ken Palm, in defending the three. Now, I say defending the three, obviously not three-point percentage defense. You brought up an interesting take in one of your blogs all the way back to 2012 about the silliness of judging a team's three-point defense by simply looking at the three-point percentage against. What are the various components you think contribute to a successful three-point defense and that contribute to your rating that had Rutgers one of the top teams in the nation in it? So, yeah, when we're talking about three-point defense, I mean, I, I mentioned before about the luck involved in three-point point shooting, and it's really like you're really uh, at the mercy of that luck a lot of times defensively. So that's where it, it becomes pretty difficult to judge. Uh, you know, I think when when teams are particularly when – they, when they allow a low three-point percentage, people think, oh, wow, they're really good at, you know, closing out on shooters or, or whatever. And really what you have control of as a defense is the amount of threes that your opponent takes. Like if you're really good at closing out on shooters – shooters are just not going to take a three if they think their shots going to get blocked or altered. So, so your, your, your influence is really on, on preventing three point attempts. And it, it gets kind of tricky on how to evaluate that. Some teams are really good at preventing three point attempts. Some teams do not do that just part of their system. And uh, you can be successful both ways, but I guess the thing to, to think about with three point percentage defense is that I, I feel like that the actual percentage is probably more a derivative of your overall defensive ability than, um, necessarily your ability to, to close out or distract on shooters as they're shooting. Um, there's, you know, you look at Virginia is probably a model example where they're consistently, they consistently allow a really low three point percentage and they haven't had necessarily a lot of length in the backcourt to, to harass shooters. It's just that it's really hard to get two point shots on them. It's really, they don't foul very much. So, uh, so you're, you know, you're almost inclined as, a, as an offense to take really bad three-point shots late in the shot clock, and that's that's the reason that they allow a low three-point percentage. And I, I would imagine a little bit of that is attributable to how Rutgers has generally been above average as well, or better than average. Um, you know, it's just it's just a kind of a, a growth out of their entire defensive philosophy. So we mentioned before how you'd rather obviously shoot a higher percentage from two than from three because there is that randomness kind of that sometimes goes into three-point makes and misses. Is that the same defensively? Would you rather be a better defensive team guarding the two than the three because of the luck, I guess, that sometimes goes into three-point shots and defending from beyond the arc even though the game seems to be moving in a direction where more and more threes are being taken? Correct. Yes. Uh I mean, you'd love to be, you know, highly rated in both, but it's just that the two-point percentage is more a reflection of your actual ability than your three-point percentage. 
Um, so it's you know, like I said, you really can't fake two point percentage. If you're if you're good at two point percentage, you're good at two point percentage, and and uh, you're pro- that's probably going to be something you see on a game by game level. Like you know, even if you look at Virginia, like you know, when they won the national title, they were one of the best in the country at three point percentage defense, but. In the tournament, opponents shot like 36% against them. So it's just like a little bit above the national average. So, you know, especially late in the year as teams get uh, – teams generally shoot better late in the year. So, you know, when you get to the tournament, um, you know, that three-point percentage defense number is, you know, probably less meaningful, certainly less meaningful than the two-point percentage defense, but even, you know, less meaningful than it would be earlier in the season. What I also found interesting from this past season with Rutgers was your luck rating for them. They were ranked 286th in the luck rating, yet they finished 20 and 11. First, I'd love to hear briefly about the luck rating overall. And and second, does having a breakthrough season, even with a bad luck rating, bode well for the Scarlet Knights next year, assuming that that rating rises, even just, even just a little bit from number 286? So the luck rating, uh, this I, I blame on Dean Oliver, who uh, wrote the book Basketball on Paper in the early 2000s and really definitely influenced uh, a lot of my early thinking on the game. And, uh, and he had this formula for uh, basically determining your statistical luck. So uh, that intrigued me. And, and a lot of it's based on your, your close game performance. So if you're good in close games, uh, you're thought to be a little bit lucky. If you're bad in close games, you're thought to be you know a little bit unlucky. Teams just don't have – guys have some skill in close games. But when you get to a one or two possession game, there's a lot of things the team doesn't have control over. And so you're just not going to win all of those games, at least not by – by your own skill, let's put it that way. You need a little bit of luck sometimes. So as far as Rutgers' number goes, some of that is actually like maybe an artifact of their schedule. You know, when you you see this with power conference teams that play kind of a weak non-conference schedule, they they beat up on some teams in non-conference and they get into conference play, and then the close game, you know, maybe goes against them a little bit, and so that gets reflected in their luck. They're winning all the, the games by, you know, they're winning a lot of games by big margins, so those aren't lucky wins. And um, there's some luck in the in the, in the losses in conference play but anyway to get to your point um yeah i mean certainly luck is not persistent so we wouldn't predict necessarily that luck Rutgers is going to be a lucky team next year but you know, if we had to predict we'd say they'd have average luck like everybody else and uh you know if they had that this year instead of being 20 and 11 i you know i haven't can't run the numbers off the top of my head but maybe they would have you know won one or two extra games with normal luck this year so, Ken, how much do you do pace and defensive efficiency kind of go hand in hand? Because Rutgers was sixth in Ken Palm in defensive efficiency and 231st in overall game tempo. So they were certainly not one of the faster, more up and down teams in the nation. Is there a correlation between the two? The slower you are, the higher the defensive efficiency? Or is Rutgers more of a coincidence that the slower they play, the better they defend? There's a small relationship there. Uh, in fact, when you break it down by offense and defense, they, they were even um, better at forcing the opponent to have long up, uh, offensive possession. So they were uh, 297th in defensive possession length, which uh, the lower ranking meaning longer possession. So, you know, there are only about you know, 55 teams in college basketball that force longer possessions. And you do see a, a relationship there. It's not, you know, super strong, but uh, you tend to see teams that force longer possessions have better uh, – defensive numbers, which, you know, obviously makes sense. If you, know, you do occasionally see that team, especially, you know, in the, the dregs of Division One, that is allowing really fast offensive possessions and their defense is bad, and you can kind of, like, just mentally put together the picture that their their defense gets shredded pretty early in the possession. And so, yeah, if you're forcing, you know, teams to, to take shots later in the shot clock, uh, 
that generally is a good indication for uh, for the quality of your defense. How much in Ken Palm does a weak non-conference schedule hurt a team like Rutgers? Looking back at last year, their non-conference was 309th in Ken Palm, but their adjusted strength of schedule, at least in conference, was 31st. And that's been one of the big criticisms of Rutgers so far has been that they haven't scheduled the most difficult opponents in the non-conference portion uh, of the season. How much does that weak non-conference hurt a high major like Rutgers, even though the Big Ten, look, it's a 20-game gauntlet? It doesn't. It doesn't really hurt at all. I mean, the whole point, I think people who are raised on the RPI, they have this notion that you know, schedule, the way they work in the RPI was your schedule strength was like a direct component of your rating. And so if you had a bad schedule, it would drag your rating down. Uh, but any self-respecting power ranking system is really trying to get away from that and, uh, you know, actually figure out how good of a team are you kind of irrespective of your schedule. So obviously the schedule matters. I mean, if you're, you know, the weak non-conference schedule, if they had stumbled a few times in non-conference play, their rating would have really been hurt. But um, but they really didn't. So, you know, based on what they did in non-conference, it was apparent that they were a pretty good team. And then obviously once they got into Big Ten play, uh, even though the, the Big Ten was pretty brutal this year, they held their own. And so that uh, gave you further confidence. So uh, the schedule really has no impact. You really can't, you know, there's really no way to game the system and, and you know, schedule your way to a, a good Ken Palm rating or a bad Ken Palm rating. It's just, uh, it's really what it, it, the system looks at your schedule and then a, evaluates your performance against that schedule and then provides a rating. So before I get to the last few questions, Ken, what's your general thoughts on the net ranking? Obviously implemented a couple years ago, it's turned into a ranking that fans constantly look at just as Ken Palm is. What are some of your likes, some of your dislikes, and how the NCAA implements it as they determine rankings and ultimately the tournament field? It's, a, it's an improvement over the RPI. Uh, we'll talk about the positives first. It's an improvement over the RPI. It's, it's a in terms of, you know, when you want, if, if we're trying to make it a, a tool, a sorting tool, as they say, to determine whether a team gets a quality win or not, I think it's very useful. Uh, uh, it's more useful from that standpoint in the RPI. Um, you want a system that evaluates how, like kind of a power rating type system that evaluates how good a team is. So uh, so if you, you know, if a team's 29th in the net and you beat that 29th ranked team, you get credit you know, as you should for being the 29th or 18, whereas in the RPI, that wasn't always true. You were, the RPI was a system that basically ranked teams based on their resumes almost. And then you were evaluating, instead of being the 29th ranked team, you would have beaten the 29th best resume, which really, it's kind of confusing. It doesn't make sense. So, um, so I think uh, it's a step in the right direction. You know, as far as the, the actual inner workings of the formula goes, it does seem like it really overvalues margin of victory. Like, you know, my system really values margin of victory, but the net is uh, is taking another step further and really, um, I think, overemphasizes like the meaning of a forty or fifty point win against a bad team. Um, so I guess the, from that standpoint, that's where I'd, I'd be critical. But ultimately, the goal, you know, hopefully at some point in my lifetime, we get to a point where uh, we have a tool that uh, will just automatically evaluate a team's resume against the schedule they played and not leave it up to uh, you know a group of ten kind of random people to. Uh, sit in the room and secretly come to their own conclusions <laughs> on this that's the that's the next step i think we're not there yet but uh, I'm, I'm glad i was glad that they you know at least moved away from the rpi which is something that really uh, i don't think any other sport in, in college athletics has done so far 
So, Ken, a couple more before I let you go. The committee uses your rankings along with others as they determine the field of 68 every uh, every March. What's your thoughts on how the committee takes Ken Palm, kind of morphs it into their decision-making process, and the thought that what you created, you know, is used by the decision-making body of the NCAA tournament? So, it's cool. I guess it's definitely flattering that, uh, that my rankings, my work has, has reached that point. Uh, it's it, I don't know how they use it in their process. It's, you know, they'll tell you that every uh, committee member has their own w- way of doing things. And in talking to the occasional committee member, like I definitely get that impression. Some people, you know, say they look at my stuff all the time and some people don't know who I am. So uh, there's definitely a wide range there. But um, as far as how, like whether it should be used, you know, that always leaves me a little bit uneasy. I think, I think in general, it's probably not used very much. They're going to lean on the net. That's what the team sheets basically use. Um, and there might be like some really limited application of kind of using my ratings for selection. Um, it's probably more suited to use, be used for seating and selection. But uh, but anyway, uh, those concerns aside, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, you know, it definitely is cool to kind of uh, realize that my work is, is being used by those people. Ken, last one before I let you go. You've been doing this for a long time, and as Ken Palm has grown, coaches know who you are. They know your site. They use your site. Do you have any stories? of interactions with coaches, you know, any stories of coaches using your statistics or even any coaches kind of going against you and your site, maybe not agreeing with what you put out. Uh, so no doubt at this point, there are, you know, like most coaches at, at some point are, are using my site for some important purpose for their team, uh, whether they're using it correctly or not, or using it in a way that I would approve of is another story. You know, I tell people that probably 350 teams subscribe to my site probably 150 use it regularly for preparing for opponents maybe like 50 like really know what they're doing with it um so i I don't necessarily have any stories of like coaches like kind of publicly going against my work maybe other than the the fouling up three study that i did which basically showed you know it was kind of a wash between you should foul up three if you're up three late in the game you know a few seconds left whether you foul or defend it's basically doesn't change your win probability too much. It probably should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. And some coaches push back against that and tell me they'll always foul or whatever, which, you know, it's fine. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I've, ne- I've never – I don't know that I had too many coaches that just go berserk over my work, I guess, other than maybe Jim Beheim this year who went – and dunk my name on in a situation uh, for something that I didn't even do. But yeah, I, 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 I saw that, that, and I saw – I was looking through, I saw that, and I saw – uh, he t- not tweeted. He mentioned it in a press conference, and I saw you tweet about that too. And then ultimately, like you said, you know you, the work that he was referring to, you had no, you had no part in that anyway. Yeah, I mean that was just a funny thing. Like I, you know, you, you never know how how uh, stuff will get to Jim Beheim. I don't think he's sitting there like surfing the internet, reading articles and stuff, you know, and uh, and jotting down notes. Like somebody probably just tipped him off that there was this article about, uh, you know defensive responsibility or whatever he was talking about and somehow my name got connected to it. <laughs> that was that was pretty funny i think the second funniest part of that was that he also when he invoked my name he said something like you know there's this guy ken palm and he, he really makes a lot of money on this and like uh but, you know, <laughs> second of all you're just freaking behind like if we're gonna talk about like we're gonna share tax returns here let's do yeah that. <laughs> you've done pretty well in this business <laughs> The mastermind behind KenPom.com, Ken Pomeroy. Ken, thanks so much for joining me and coming on the podcast. You know, most importantly, during this time, stay safe, stay healthy, and I look forward to having you on again soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. 
I want to give a big thanks to Ken for coming on the podcast and taking some time to talk about Ken Palm overall and Rutgers basketball in his rankings. I mentioned it during our discussion, but this program has ascended up Ken Palm from 279th when Coach Peichel took over to finishing this past season 28th. That's a 63-spot jump per season. It's really remarkable how much this program has changed over these four years, and it's a testament to really everyone involved in it. While it's still tough that the NCAA tournament did not happen, this 2019-2020 team really vaulted Rutgers basketball back into the national spotlight in a positive way. While the sports landscape generally remains unknown, I know I can't wait until the 2020-2021 campaign. We are seeing non-conference games get announced, we are excited for all the 2020 commits to get to campus, and most importantly, we are anxious to get back to a sold-out rack. We saw so many special moments this past season, and I'm positive more are on the way this coming year here on The Banks. Follow On The Banks on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Just search On The Banks Podcast.